Hello, my name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Penelope Spheris, director of Wayne's World, Little Rascals, The Beverly Hillbillies... Senseless with David Spade. <laughs> but probably, most famously, um, she directed... The direct- Kid and I with Tom Arnold. <laughs> she directed the uh, Decline of Western Civilization trilogy, which is the first one about punk films, second one, uh, The Metal Years, about heavy metal, and the third one about gutter punks. Now, I think we're kind of interested in Penelope Spheris, because she has this weirdly bifurcated career. Mm -hmm. She's the director of this trilogy of documentaries that are, you know, some of the most beloved documentaries ever made. Is that too much of an overstatement? No, I don't think so. They're beloved by the people who beloved them. Mm -hmm. And I think they actually impacted the music scenes that they documented because, like, sick of the metal years, that defined what heavy metal was Mm -hmm. to people who maybe were, like, on the outskirts of it or maybe didn't understand it completely. And then there was this period in the 90s when she was an A-list comedy director with diminishing returns, mm-hmm. I would say. But I, Wayne's World was the key one, and it was a cultural phenomenon at the and time. And there's articles that, you know, the headline is like, Penelope Sphere says, I sold out. <laughs> yeah, so, and that was the question that I had revisiting her films this week, because a recurring theme in both the documentaries and even some of the comedy films is the idea of selling out. Mm-hmm. Wayne Campbell is very concerned with selling out. The people in Decline Part 1 are always talking about living authentically mm-hmm. and, and not wanting to go get an office job and yet she directed the Beverly Hillbillies like you could not sell out more than she yeah. did and I mean I don't think it's a sin to take a job for the money I no. mean if it was a sin I would be in hell right now <laughs> uh, but at the same time somebody who's that interested in it as a as a you know artistic preoccupation you've got to wonder what does she make of her own career she said publicly that she took those jobs because one she was a woman working in the industry and there just wasn't any jobs for her anywhere mm-hmm. and that it was so competitive and that the chance to direct such a big budget project like Wayne's World was something that was not going to come along every day. And easy to forget in the case of the Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, th- that movie is a bit of a joke, but I mean, when it was being made, that was positioned as this is going to be like a big blockbuster Christmas release. I saw so many trailers for the Beverly Hillbillies. Every time... Um, Grandma got knocked uh, off, <laughs> off the car and she hit the ground. Ah, oh, belly laughs for me. That was an A-level Christmas release that was supposed to make $100 million. <laughs> so I, it's not a bad gig for a director. Oh, man, I must have seen The Little Rascals in theaters, too. I saw, like, all of her filmography, except for Wayne's World, which I only saw in my adulthood. But let's jump back a little bit, because Penelope Spheris, you know, she started from nothing, pretty much. Like, when she talks about her past, she talks about how she was, like, carny folk. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and that she ended up uh, going to film school on her IMDb, and I found a few articles about this. One of her first student films was something that starred Richard Pryor, um, which was called Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales, and it has never been released. It's been locked up in a vault, and when it did screen briefly at a kind of celebration of Richard Pryor's film career in 2005, Richard Pryor's widow... And his daughter accused Penelope Spheris of stealing the film from Pryor's home to show at that event. Okay, so I've got two questions about this. Mm-hmm. First, how did she hook up with Richard I have no Pryor? idea. Okay. Yeah. Uh, secondly, what was this movie about? Uh, so according to the IMDb, the summary is a white man goes on trial for having raped a black woman. So like, I want to see this movie. I would love Penelope to see this. Penelope Spheris directing Richard Pryor in a movie with that premise. Could be very interesting. Especially like at her punk rockiest, like coming out of film school with something to prove mm-hmm. and to be able to do that movie. Like, I, how did that come about? I have no idea. But 
uh, if someone has this movie, show us. But considering yep. that like litigation comes out just by screening some clips, I doubt it's out there. Mm-hmm. It's funny that we're talking again about movies that have been suppressed. And it's like, oh, when we do African-American filmmakers, their film have been suppressed. Mm-hmm. When we do women filmmakers, their films have been suppressed. Well, with the decline of Western Civilization trilogy, those movies were unavailable on home video, except in bootlegs for many, many years. I think Partly it was because of music rights. And also, Penelope Sphere said that she just didn't really have that much of an interest in putting it out. Mm -hmm. I read an interview with her when the third one was coming out. She couldn't get any distribution for it. She essentially had to do it all herself and pay for it all herself. And she talks about how she owns the rights and she wants to put them on VHS and DVD, but it's just so much work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in interviews when the film finally did hit Blu-ray, which happened, I think, one or two years ago, Mm -hmm. uh, she said again, it was so much work to get this out there. I mean, I remember hearing about part two for the first time because it was on Entertainment Weekly's list of the top 50 cult films of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was like number 48 or 49 or something. And that was, you know, 2004 or something. There was another movie on that list, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story, where those were the two movies on the list that people uh, traded on bootleg VHS tapes. And I think that was very key to their appeal, you know, like there was something, it's like the cinematic equivalent of a photocopied zine. And I think there's power to that, like that kind of handmade quality, that kind of bootlegged, like Knight's generation, especially because of the subject matter, which is all like this punk music, people doing it for themselves. People that when they started couldn't even play instruments, but they felt they needed to express themselves in some way, so they just went out there and did it. So Decline Part 1 was, as you said, about the burgeoning punk scene. And this was a movie that posed more of a challenge for me than the other two because you're a straight lace guy who doesn't understand breaking any rules yeah clearly well (laughs) i mean this is not my kind of music Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of this music in it yes uh, and a lot of the performances in it so i mean i think it's a an excellent film objectively it's an incredible document of this period and the concert footage she gets where like riots break out and people storm the stage is unbelievable well it's so raw and she's right there like you never feel any distance between her and her subjects she likes these people she wants to know about them she's not like a scientist going down and like how does this work she's actually involved in their world and i think that's what separates this documentary versus other stuff about this kind of scene and you're watching it thinking how did the camera not get knocked over. Maybe it did. Who Probably knows? a bunch of times it just didn't make it into the movie. Yeah. Uh, I had a little bit of difficulty with this one only because like you, it's not really my type of thing. And I actually watched them back in a weird order. I watched the second one, I watched the third one, and then I watched the first one. Mm-hmm. And her like style of how she tells a story evolves so much between like one and two and two and three. And the first one, she seems so enraptured with this music. Mm-hmm. Like she tends to let it play. Like you'll see one or two songs in their entirety. There are big tonal differences between the three films. So the first one, I wouldn't exactly call it a romantic depiction of the punk subculture, but it's certainly sympathetic. Even though it is warts and all, like the yeah. homophobia and the kind of sexism is right out there in the open. But she's very sympathetic with these young, kind of confused, you know, anxious and angry kids who want to escape this, you know, suburban drudgery. And, and they're out there making this music despite making no money out of it. Like, mm-hmm. like they, they lose money doing this music but they just have to do it. And what's funny is that like a lot of the band she does document did go on to do like bigger and better things. Black Flag is Yeah, one of exactly. Them. Yeah, yeah. And I think what was the most powerful for me in this first documentary was like just them sitting and talking about it. While mm-hmm. you do get those like in the chaos moments, like the fans talking about it. Uh she starts to pioneer the editing 
and shooting um, scheme that you would have throughout these films, which is like one bare light bulb hanging beside the person talking. And there's a segment that comes about three quarters into the movie where it's just like a bunch of fans talking about the music, what it means to them and like why they adopt it as a lifestyle. And like, that's very powerful for me. And in the second and third one, she kind of expands those ideas throughout the film. Now, the second one, which is about heavy metal, and I believe it was made in 1988. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a full eight or nine years after the first one, you know, she is affectionate towards the subjects of the film. But she knows they're a joke. And she knows they're a joke. And also, there's a much broader range of subjects. So you have very, very famous people like Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons of Kiss. Paul Stanley in the most ridiculous, like, interview position ever filmed. And Gene Simmons, who is one of the worst men who ever lived. Oh, he's awful. Uh, (laughs) What a a monster of a human being. uh, But there's also, you know, Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, uh, Lemmy. Uh, lot, lots of famous people you've heard of. And a lot of them are speaking very honestly or speaking in a way that makes them look like the doofuses that they are. Mm. Like even um, Steven Tyler is just talking honestly about like, oh, you know, I made millions of dollars. And you hear Penelope Spheris off camera go like, where is it now? And he's like, oh, it went up my nose. Well, you know, Steven Tyler and Ozzy Osbourne are two who are both a little ridiculous, but they also have like been at this long enough that yeah. they have like a certain amount of wisdom. It's like Alice Cooper as well. Yeah, who's yeah. like sitting uh, on the stage covered in makeup and speaking just very matter-of-fact about the career and, like, why he does the things that he does. But in addition to all these superstars, there are all of these other wannabes and also... Rams. Odin! Okay, Odin. <laughs> now, Odin is, I think, the the band that everyone remembers. Uh, we see them being interviewed in a hot tub surrounded by groupies. Which was the director's hot tub behind her <laughs> house. Okay, interesting. Um, these guys were a semi-big deal in, like, a neighborhood of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. The Sunset Strip, basically. I mean, obviously, when you see a doctor documentary like this you go online and be like where are they now yes and like the guys from odin were like we were basically broken up by the time we recorded that documentary okay but in the documentary they are so confident and cocky boastful they're they're like like, you know what we want to be bigger than the beatles and we're gonna be yeah like like you are gonna hear about us and the women that are on their shoulders are just like laughing and like teehee and it's not just the benefit of hindsight you see odin perform in this documentary and their gimmick is that they have assless pants And they're going to ride that all the way to the top. Yeah. And obviously this is supposed to be some sort of transgressive gesture, but it doesn't work. It looks, uh, frankly, like it's supposed to be homoerotic, but it's not. I mean, you know, that's where she's so good at doing that, like compare and contrast between like people that are really successful, like Poison versus like Odin or the other kind of heavy metal gigs and bands that play. And you think, okay, why Kiss and why not Odin? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, to some extent it's luck and to some extent... Odin could never be successful. It's just, it's just not there. Yeah. And also there, okay, Kiss is in it for the wrong reasons too, but Odin is definitely in it for the wrong reasons. They want to be famous, they want to be rich, mm-hmm. um, and they want groupies. And actually, we should talk about that a bit because the fact that Penelope Spheris is a woman makes a huge difference in these movies because we hear her interviewing these people. Yeah, she's so present in these documentaries and she's not like the polite kind of, oh, I want to be your friend and get these stories. She's often very aggressive in the way she's asking the questions. I mean, if a man had made this documentary, there would probably be a bit more of a of a like high fiving. Mm-hmm. Oh, isn't this lifestyle cool? Whereas with her, there's a bit of a sense of like, I'm your patient mother asking you. (laughs) You think that's what it is? Well, maybe not patient mother, or I'm your patient school teacher. Mm -hmm. Like she's a bit of a disciplinarian or she's a bit of a, I don't know, like a, a, a cold audience for them because she'll ask, you know, how are the groupies? 
and these guys will be like, oh man, we love the groupies, you know, as many as possible, four, four of them a day, whatever. And like, she's like, why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like she's not, she's not high-fiving them through <laughs> no. it. And you can, you can tell it's not quite the same. But she genuinely like likes this stuff, I think. Like yeah. she loves the punk stuff. She loves that transgressiveness. Mm-hmm. Now when it comes to heavy metal stuff, I'm sure she liked it as well, but it is that kind of corruption, that kind of selling out yes. to the punk ethos. It's taking these punk ideas and making them like, for mass consumption. And everyone wants to be super famous. Mm-hmm. Everyone wants to be rich. And there's that montage where she asks, okay, what if you don't become rich? It's never like, going to happen. Yeah, I, of course I'm going to make it. Of mm-hmm. course I'm going to make it. And if I say I won't make it, then then that means I won't make it. You, know? yep. you just have to be positive. And they sound kind of like they're at a Tony Robbins type <laughs> gur- guru self-help thing, like power of positive thinking. And you can tell that that doesn't quite mesh with her philosophy. But at the same time, you do get the fans of heavy metal and it is that kind of outgrowth of punk because they don't look like normal people mm-hmm. and like it genuinely means something for them to be mm-hmm. involved in the scene to be an outsider to what regular society likes it's just heavy metal is popular and goofy and big mm-hmm. and i think that like the best thing about decline of western civilization part two is that like it's so funny as well yeah like it it's like laugh out loud like oh my god these people even though that like some of them you like some of them you think they're terrible gene simmons <laughs> yeah. but it but Gene Simmons is so himself. Oh, well. man. There's like a yeah. scene where I guess she set it up where they're like in a lingerie store. And Gene Simmons is like being interviewed. And there's like women walking around, like looking at tops and stuff like that. And he, one walks by him and he looks over. He's like, woo. And he like whistles. Ugh. Yeah. But there's also kind of like no way to depict him flatteringly. <laughs> it's like he is he is so himself. He is so uncompromisingly Gene Simmons. Yeah. I'm sure he probably would not object to the way that he was shown in the movie. So while uh, we skipped over... Over, uh, some of the feature films that she made between Decline 1 and 2. Like, she made Suburbia, which I think is one of her strongest fictional films. And I've seen that, but just not recently. That was a film that she made for Roger Corman's yep, she did. New Concord. And it's almost Bressonian in its storytelling, <laughs> and the fact that she cast all non-actors <laughs> to play like, Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers is in it as a guy who loves his rat and other animals. And it's really about kids that leave home because they have a terrible life usually teenagers and, and they, suburban kids. yeah suburban yeah. kids and they hook up with other kids essentially in this punk scene and they just live in the gutters a subject that you would tackle in a documentary decline part three and by the way suburbia i think is probably the most upsetting film i've seen from the roger corman assembly line well he didn't usually make movies like this yeah. right and you can almost feel her fighting against the rules that he would apply like you know like oh we need to see breasts in these in these movies there's a scene at the beginning where a woman gets assaulted by a bunch of punks at a concert where they rip off all her clothes Mm -hmm. and so you get those breasts and i'm sure that's what roger corman wanted but it's in such like a distasteful horrible way that's also characterizing these people Mm -hmm. right because like there's an idea of like ah living on the streets living on your own it's like living the good life but Spheris shows you the good and the really bad at the same time. There's also that horrible opening scene where a baby is mauled by a vicious dog. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or the ending, which is also really brutal. Incredibly bleak, yeah. It's a good film. Yeah, it is super bleak. And it is essentially like in any other situation, if it had been released like by like a like a mini company, it would have much more acclaim than it does. But let's be honest, it wouldn't have been made. 
the way that it was if it was made by another company. Mm -hmm. It's these kind of Corman rules. You wish more movies like this kind of came out of it, like someone just went for it. But uh, Penelope's Fierce is one of those people. Yeah, Suburbia, and it's really well-loved, too. Shell Factory put out, like, a two-disc special edition when they were doing all the Corman films, Mm -hmm. and uh, I would highly recommend to check it out. She also did, like, The Boys Next Door. Uh, She did Hollywood Vice Squad with Carrie Fisher. Dudes, Mm -hmm. which recently got a release on Blu-ray. All of them, like, involved in this idea of, like, punk music. Like, it's an ethos that she brought in all of her films, whether it just be like subtext or literal text, like it is in Dudes, where it's two punks go out to the desert and one of their friends gets killed and decide to take revenge on the hillbillies who did it. So it becomes kind of like a um, neo-Western comedy thing. Now, I want to get to Decline 3 eventually, but mm. between Decline 2 and 3, she became a comedy director. Yep. Uh, a big comedy director yeah. with Wayne's World in 1992. Now, we should point out that she got her start producing the shorts that Albert Brooks made at the first few episodes of Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. That's where she got started. And um, she essentially said that Albert Brooks knew nothing about like the technical parts of making movies. She helped him out with that. And he kind of introduced her to the L.A. scene, which he knew and she had no idea about. And she continued to hate like to this day, yeah. according to recent interviews. Those Albert Brooks short films for SNL, by the way, have you ever seen any? Yeah, of them? I have. I mean, they're they're not hilarious, but they're so weird. Yeah, they are weird. And they got more and more ambitious as they went along. And <laughs> you can tell why Lauren Michaels didn't want to have him on anymore, because he would send these short films that were like 11 minutes long. Yeah. And it was like, you cannot cut them (laughs) yep (laughs) and uh wayne's world you know speaking of saturday night live i didn't grow up with mike myers in the wayne's world character i never saw the wayne's world movies i don't know how that happened i guess i had very strict parents about what i could or could not watch as kids i remember people on the playground talking about this and they sounded like the most funny like out there movies i could possibly see i saw it once or twice as a kid Mm -hmm. liked it liked it as a kid did you like the mike myers wayne's world segments yeah on Saturday Night yeah Live? i would see snl reruns after school and i liked those segments and also like mike myers was a pretty huge comedy star at that time so like there was something in the air that made everyone regard him as funny and you can probably tell where we're leading here um <laughs> because when i started dating emily my partner of many many years Uh, one of the first things we did was watch Wayne's World because she was like, oh my God, I can't believe you haven't seen this. And so we watched it and it was one of those terrible moments where she's like, you watch a movie with someone and now I'm on the other side of it where I'm like, oh, this is not funny. Yeah. (laughs) And just, you could, you could tell she was like deflating as it like went along and she's like, what? You don't find this funny? Like this is, she knew the movie by heart. She dressed up in a Halloween costume as like Wayne and Garth with friends. And I was just sitting there being like, I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I watched it this time fully expecting to laugh. I watched it again being like, you know what? Maybe I was in the wrong place. Because when I it, saw there it. are certain jokes you remember from Wayne's World and you think, oh, yeah, that's a funny joke. I bet that whole movie is really funny. <laughs> I should revisit that sometime. Uh, and I don't know if it's uh, uh, context or what. Uh, I was pretty stone-faced watching it this time. I was with it for like the first 20 minutes. Okay. Where I was like, okay, this weird lame comedy thing, they obviously are aware of what they're doing. Uh, uh, Okay, I know a certain amount of suspension of disbelief is required for, Mm. for comedy films. The first stumbling block is that Wayne and Garth are like 35 years old <laughs> and, and they're, te- they're teenagers. So, it, I mean, there's a certain amount like kabuki element to the presentation. <laughs> that doesn't really bother me. Yeah, okay. The big stumbling block is that every joke is Mike Meyer 
kind of saying a catchphrase, staring at the camera, winking, and it holding like one or two seconds. Yeah, it's like a Marx Brothers movie where they took <laughs> they went it on, on the tour. road and they yeah. knew where the laughs were. Except imagine if Groucho looked at the camera and then did a did a little thumbs up and, and winked. Mike Myers does that in all his movies. Every That's like a Mike Myers signature. I would say Dana Carvey's much funnier than Mike Myers is in this film. Actually, yeah, you're right. And he doesn't have much to do. And I have a feeling that probably has something to do with Mike's ego because Mike wrote this script. I know. Oh, shocker, right? <laughs> yeah. And and I think Mike Myers is probably like, let's give this other asshole as little as possible to do and give me lots and lots and lots to do. Well, Penelope Spheres talks to this day how difficult the set was. She had made movies before. She had made like a bunch of feature films, but they were essentially like Corman Productions or other lower budget films. And this was like a big, like million crew thing. And she said it was almost impossible to deal with because... You have Mike Myers, who I assume at this point he didn't have like the giant ego he would have later on. But reading IMDb and some interviews that she's done, at one point Mike Myers at the craft service table realized that like they only had margarine or they didn't have butter and he flipped the table into the air. That's insane. Was he like this on SNL? I can't imagine I he mean, was. Th- I mean, that's a show that's hard to make mm. and, and that like... You can't have a Titanic eagle like that flipping over tables at Studio well, A. Well, Spheris says that... Like, SNL fostered a community where everyone was fighting each other and trying yeah. to one-up each other. So maybe Mike Myers is just, like, that big of an ego that, like, that's how he succeeded as long as he did. Also, by the way, Dana Carvey was the star of SNL for a couple of years. Oh, was he? Yeah, he was a huge, huge star on that show. Uh, so, I mean, I would imagine that Mike Myers was probably resentful of him and, <laughs> and probably wanted to put him in his place by giving him such a shitty role. And, you know, it's not even Myers. It's like, this movie... It seems to have been written into the ground. Like, Spheres talks about how they did, like, 14 drafts of the screenplay. Well, okay, so only the finest quality jokes were picked. Like, that that joke where Mike Myers opens the door and he sees a bunch of army guys training. And he's like, oh, this doesn't have anything to do with anything. I just wanted to open open a door and have it be like a Bond movie where there are people training. What Bond movie is he talking about? I know, I know. And... <laughs> A, a gag like that is kind of a Zucker Abram Zucker type gag. Oh no, it's really a Seltzman. Uh... Yeah, and also this movie doesn't have the pace of a Zucker Abram it's Zucker so movie. It's so slow. Yeah. Like five minutes will pass, and like the only thing you'll have to hold on to is like Mike Myers in his underwear. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, or there's that scene where he's talking with Tia Carrera in Cantonese. And the joke is that Mike can speak really well in Cantonese. And it just goes on and on and on. And at the end, he just says one word and the subtitle's really long. And then he looks in the camera and he's like, and no one can see me like shrugging my shoulders. A gag that he used again, by the way, in I think Goldmember. Yes. Yeah. It's such an odd film as well because there's no stakes. No. The stakes are Mike Myers is threatened by Rob Lowe, who's not even that bad in the movie. Like for a film that's about selling out, the selling out that happens is that they get a big crew to do their show and they recreate the whole basement, which is a funny idea. And they have to call it like someone's arcade presents Wayne's world. Mm-hmm. And then someone comes on and talks for a minute and a half at the beginning of the show. And then they can assumingly do whatever they want. Also, a problem with the stakes of the movie is that Wayne never really seems tempted to sell out. Mm-hmm. Like on that first episode, when he has the video arcade mogul come on and he makes fun of him on air, like there should be, I think, you know, a 10 or 15 minute stretch of the movie where he's sort of tempted by the high life. Mm-hmm. Um, and like he needs to sell out to the point that like, 
you know... He realizes what he's giving up. Yeah, and what he's doing is so bad and not what Wayne's World is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I, think I don't want to rewrite Wayne's World. I so. think you'll agree that the Mike Myers-Tia Carrera romance uh, it just burns up the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's nothing better than a movie about a jealous boyfriend who doesn't want her talking to any other men. How about that gag where it turns out Alice Cooper is really smart? <laughs> and it goes on Brilliant. and on and All right. on. Anyway, sorry, I'm sure many people listening to this oh, a lot. throw in their iPod. People love Wayne's World, and that's great. I mean, I watch this, and I watch any of the Austin Powers movies, and I just think, like, what was... What was in the air? What mass hypnosis now, happened? We, sh- you, we should say that, like, we loved Austin Powers when it came oh, out. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we loved it. Doing all the catchphrases. And now you watch those movies, and you're like, grown people put this together? So, Spheros and Myers were battling every day on set. Y- you told me an interesting thing about the Queen song. Yeah, which was that Spheros uh, read the script and went, well, they wouldn't be listening to Bohemian Rhapsody, they're heavy metal guys. They'd be listening to something like ACDC in the car and kind of headbanging to it. And Myers was like, no, this is a song that I listened to with my parents when I was a kid. So that's why I wanted it in the movie. And I mean, that scene is iconic. Yeah. And Spheris has admitted, like, I was wrong in that situation. Yeah. And that that's... I'm not sure if she was, though. No, I mean, yeah. as far as characters go, it does make more sense what she said. But again, it's like... She had no power in this situation. The fact that she was able to finish the movie is, I think, amazing. And it became such a huge hit. And she was not asked back for Wayne's World 2. Yeah, again, like the smog in the air. (laughs) People still love it. They love it. I mean, when I um, was talking about it with Emily, she's like, oh, there's a commentary with Spheris on the DVD, which I listened to. And she's like, I listened to this a hundred (laughs) times. But I think it also makes a difference that like Emily, she could look at someone like Penelope Spheris and see a woman make a successful studio comedy oh sure yeah which is not something that happens very often i'm curious uh, do, do you sense any like decline part two spirit in wayne's world no like, does she regard these two guys with any sort of distance you I don't know, think you, you so. Know. I think that she still in decline has a kind of empathy for like the goofballs in the movie mm-hmm. while she can be kind of like direct with them. Mm-hmm. The problem with Wayne's world is that like, especially Mike Myers is a huge asshole. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I am not at all sympathetic with Wayne in this movie. <laughs> Who's living in his fucking parents' basement and gets handed a show. And then he's just a jackass about it and a jealous asshole. I mean, the one thing he has to do to compromise his principles is read a sponsor message. <laughs> yeah, at the know. beginning. Although, you know, you know, we're this podcast a, is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. We're from a we're from a different generation, a generation that doesn't care about selling out because, because we want money and yeah, we can't get real jobs. Exactly. Uh, so this movie brought Penelope Spheris the job directing again the uh, blockbuster of fall 1993, the Beverly Hillbillies. <sighs> yeah, uh, a movie that I watched a lot as a kid. Mm-hmm. Well, for one reason. Mr. Jim Varney. And man, does he sell his character. He is the glue that holds this film together. Anytime he's on screen, I'm like, ah, yes, Jim Varney. Well, what Beverly Hillbillies and Wayne's World have in common is that they're kind of lame and not funny. Mm-hmm. But one difference they have, and I don't necessarily think Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> is better than Wayne's World, but a difference they have is... I'd not- rather watch Beverly Hills- Hillbillies again than <laughs> Wayne's <laughs> yes. World. Yes. I'm going to say it because okay. like Wayne's World, I don't like these characters. And at least I have Jim Varney doing a scene where he's like, I miss your mother every day and I see her in your eyes. So I think all four of the actors, 
uh, Jim Varney as Jed Clampett, mm-hmm. Erica Eleniak as Ellie May, Cloris Leachman as Granny, and Diedrich Bader as, um, you know, what the, whatever the hell his name is. Yeah, uh, I don't J- know. Jethro. 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 Uh, I think all four of them do a good job in this movie and sell it and are very likable. Well, yeah, they're the empathetic, naive characters. That's the problem with Wayne's World is that uh, Mike Myers is not naive. He's too smart. He's too smart and he knows what's going on. So he's just acting like a dumbass to make people look like fools. Wayne's World has a bit of that like obnoxious 90s thing, the Mm. kind of Pulp Fiction thing of, oh, we're self-aware and and meta. Yeah, fuck that shit. No, there's nothing like that in Beverly Hillbilly. Beverly Hillbilly also has the stack cast as well. Oh, the supporting cast, Dabney Coleman, Lily Tomlin, uh, Dolly Parton is in it. (laughs) Crazy. Uh, Rob Schneider. Even like Leah Thompson from the Back to the Future films. Right. And lots of cameos like Buddy Ebsen, who, of course, was on the original show, appears as his other iconic character, Barnaby Jones. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor has a cameo. <laughs> timeless, timeless joke. I mean, there's not really that much to say about the Beverly Hillbillies. OK, so here's the plot. Um, uh, it's the story of a man named Jeff, <laughs> a poor mountaineer who barely kept his family fed. <laughs> yeah. Then one day, yeah, uh, he gets rich. They go to Beverly Hills. And uh, what do you want? It's the pilot episode of a TV show. Uh, I got to write it onto my list of shows where naive um, dum-dums think that the giving the middle finger is a greeting of some kind. So I was able to add uh, Bean, the ultimate disaster movie. And somebody pointed out a third one. I don't remember what it is now. Yeah, but it's the exact same joke in both movies. <laughs> yep. And the plot also involves, so Dabney Coleman is the head of the bank. And of course, he's got this new billionaire at his bank. So he wants to do anything he can to please him. And uh, uh, Jed Clampett wants to have a wife so that his daughter, Ellie Mae, can grow up and be a, a, a sophisticated woman. And Rob Schneider and Leah Thompson play this conniving couple who are going to bilk him out of his money. It's a real Adams family. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and then the shenanigans. So that's the, that's the, the you plot. You keep going into the plot as if I'm going to jump in and say more about the movie. I'm all tapped out, well, man. I, I, okay. <laughs> But mostly it's a clothesline for jokes about what would happen if yokels were in a mansion, which, of course, is what the original TV show was as well. Yeah. Just, just, I don't know how long it lasted. Ten seasons you of think the yokels in a mansion. You think the screenwriter like watched like all the episodes? Like, I got to give the ultimate version of this. Well, maybe he watched all the episodes and be like, what are what are all the best jokes? <laughs> yeah. but there were also kind of a lot of topical jokes in this film. Oh, well, I mean, as a comedy film, one of the biggest struggles is that like, it's not even like edited particularly funny. There's a specific scene where Rob Schneider gets up and does a bunch of slapstick that's undercut by really weird cutting. I don't mm. know if you remember the scene. He like gets up to go to Dabney Coleman's office and he like bumps into someone. And he's got a, a big jug of water. Yeah, yeah, but it keeps cutting back to like Dabney Coleman like reacting to it, undercutting the slapstick. Yeah. And it's like, ah, this is just not even funny. Yeah, but there is Jim Varney Ugh. acting the hell out of it, giving the emotional core of, of the like movie. a Shakespearean drama. I mean, Jim Varney really plays it straight and he has a lot of i think he brings dignity to the it's one of the rare like studio non-earnest things that jim varney was able to do and i understand that spheris had to fight for him to be honest really yeah Ah, hollywood failed jim varney the studio was just like no he's earnest don't put him in your movie that's crazy yeah (laughs) Uh, but she had that wayne's world clout i guess yeah i mean you look at like jim varney in that movie you don't even think of Ernest other than him looking like him because he's not acting like Ernest or any of that stuff so Uh, he's very good and then there was the little rascals of course which we did not revisit for the podcast although it does feature a cameo by uh 45 
5 himself, Donald Trump. Oh, does it? You remember how in The Little Rascal? I do not remember okay. The Little Rascal, even though I saw it theatrically on 35 millimeter. <laughs> Listeners, you remember how in The Little Rascals there's that mean rich kid who is vying uh, for Darlene's affections with Alfalfa? Well, the mean rich kid's dad is Donald Trump. And at one point, he's on the phone with Donald, and Donald says, You're the best kid that money can buy. (laughs) I was more of a blank check and richy rich kind of guy. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say this for Spheris, too. I mean, imagine how hard it would be to direct The Little Rascals marshalling all those kids Ugh, what a nightmare and that dog oh my god obviously like she took these jobs because it would give her money and she said that multiple enough, times you know where like she had a daughter she was raising it was mm-hmm. difficult where else was she going to get jobs that were going to pay well mm-hmm. i mean after that she made black sheep with um chris farley and david spade which is always like i'm, I'm like is it tommy boy or black sheep which one came out first I think tommy boy is the well-regarded one yeah black sheep is the the black the sheep of the canon. <laughs> but like, after that, 1998, she made Decline Part 3, which I personally think is one of the most, like, emotional things that she's ever done. Now, I- I'm coming to you apologetic because I watched the first half of this and ran out of time before doing this mm-hmm. podcast. I will watch the rest of it later. I was very immersed in it while I was watching it, but you, you, I guess, can carry this part. Yeah, so uh, she said she started the documentary wanting to kind of document, like, the resurgence of punk, like, from beyond heavy metal. And what she ended up discovering was that she was more interested in these fans who would watch these shows and what their lives were like. Because essentially, it's a documentary about the kids that were in suburbia, which she made in 1983. Mm-hmm. And this is, like, 1998. Mm-hmm. And it's all these kids that are living on the street, living in, like, um, abandoned buildings and going to these punk shows and defining themselves by this punk aesthetic. And they're living lives to the point that, like, a bunch of them die as the documentary is being filmed. And, I mean, compared to the first two, the tone is despairing. Mm-hmm. The, fir- the first one is... It, and, and the first two are much more fun or there's a sense of kind of joy and discovery to them. Well, there's just a sense of sadness in this one. There's a, there's a section where she talks to these kids and is like, why did you leave home? And they talk very honestly about being physically abused mm-hmm. by their parents and how that made them into the people that they are. Like, the best thing about this documentary is that she got on the level with these uh, kids and they're able to open up in ways you would never imagine that, like, these you know, really damaged people could. And it's just amazing to see on screen. I'm impressed that she can do this, like just from a journalistic point of view. I mean, it takes extraordinary skill when you're not in this peer group mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to go in and re- sort of relate to them, but also be an authority figure, you know? There's some sequences near the end where she's like right in the thick of it, hanging out with them, recording on like a VHS camera as they're like mm-hmm. getting ready and they're having parties. And that's where you get like a sense of that she is not in this scene like she was in the first one. Mm -hmm. She's empathetic with these people, but I don't think they would consider her one of them, where she's, like, filming at a party, and at one point she's like, shut the fuck up! Mm -hmm. Like, I'm trying to film here! But, you know, most of them are aware of the Decline movie. Yes, and I think that's how she got, like, a foot into the door. Yeah, And, and she's also somebody who was part of that scene at one point, so there's perhaps a perception that, okay, she's not one of us, but she could have been one of us at one time. And she said that she was making those studio films to be able to make documentaries like 
Decline of Western Civilization Part 3. And I mean, that same year that that film was released, she made the David Spade, Marlon Wayans comedy Senseless, which I've never seen, but I vividly remember the poster where I believe it was Marlon Wayans like holding out like a blue jar, like a test tube of something. Yeah. Uh, you never seen it? Ooh, I uh, like that. No, I haven't seen it, but I've seen the poster. Brad Dourif is second build. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, and I haven't seen The Kid and I, which I believe is her last theatrically released comedy I'm film. I'm shocked you haven't seen that. I, As a Tom Arnold super fan. Oh, yeah, I love Tom Arnold. <laughs> after The Kid and I, she struggled to make any films after that. I like that in 1999, which is before The Kid and I, she was going to make a documentary about a band that Charles Band put in one of his movies called The Blood Dolls. Mm. And it just never took off. But there's like a little short of it that's like five minutes long called Holly Weird. Holly Weird. Yeah. It's probably about those libs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little bit of Michael and Us magic coming out there. Um, but she did make some movies. She made a TV movie, The Real Saint Nick, in 2012, and something called Balls to the Wall in 2011. These definitely feel like uh, I have mortgages to pay films. Now, when the Decline movies came out on Blu-ray recently, she was talking about possibly making another one. And I'm very curious what that would look like. I mean, would it be SoundCloud rappers? I mean, what is... In the first three, like, she's most of the people in them are white. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are, frankly, racist. Yes. Um, I'm I'm interested in, would she still be interested in kind of like the white punk scene and where would that lead her in the year 2018? I have no uh, idea, you know, but I would I'm love to see it because yeah. those documentaries are so powerful and mm -hmm. even her fiction films like Suburbia are so powerful mm -hmm. that I would love to see her just do something that she's really passionate about because obviously she's not really that passionate about the Beverly Hillbillies, um, Black Sheep, or the Little Rascals. Mm -hmm. So it's like when she's behind something, that's when it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And I would be there like first day ticketed hand to see like the decline of uh western civilization part four whatever that may be and you know man i've seen decline too with an audience oh it kills so good yeah <laughs> it's a whole other movie when you see it with an like audience. if you're listening to this and you haven't seen those docs especially part two you have to go watch it yeah go do it so justin do we have any letters this week we do have a letter and it's from uh you know what i won't say till we get to the end of it it goes hey guys I came across your podcast episode today about my father, Gary Graver. This is an episode we did a few weeks ago on the cinematographer of Orson Welles' The Other Side of the Wind and many other pictures, mm -hmm. mostly directed by Ferdinand Ray and Jim Wynorski and Al Adamson. Highly recommend that episode, by the way. That's one of my favorite ones we've done. And the letter continues, It was flattering to hear how much time he spent reviewing his work and learning about his relationship with Orson. After spending the last 20 years of his life trying to get The Other Side of the Wind released, it's bittersweet to see it finally happen. We can now see why it was so important to him, it probably would have changed the trajectory of his career. Thanks for honoring him with praise and criticism. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Sean Graver. Well, thank you, Sean. And uh, we love Gary Graver. We love Gary yeah. Graver. And I'm a little disappointed that I didn't see like more articles about Gary Graver come out in the wake of The Other Side of the yeah, Wind. He's the real unsung hero. Yeah, and film. I think that it'll probably come maybe in a few years when people like, now that they have this final piece of the puzzle, mm -hmm. they can go back and like start to recontextualize his life and career. So this week on our Patreon, which you can become a subscriber of by going to www.patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club, we're tackling sequels, specifically two sequels, Creed 2 and 2.0. 
or Robot 2.0, which is a uh, Indian movie that is a giant smash that me and Will saw in theaters together at the Indian cinema uh, in the GTA, which is the greater Toronto area. So you want to hear about that? Definitely. I mean, if you enjoyed us talking about Bahubali 2, then you're definitely going to want to listen to this. And there are no bigger Rocky fans than me and Will. Maybe Matthew Kumar. That's pretty much it. There are probably bigger Rocky fans, but I... We're big Rocky fans. I, that, that's only because people love those movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that as well. So you can become a subscriber to listen to that episode. Again, it's patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. So next week, you don't know Jack. Who are we talking about, Will? We're talking about Jack Nicholson. <laughs> An actor who... Has he done anything since The Departed? He appeared in a movie called The Bucket List. Oh, yes, that's And also, right. How Do You Know? Oh, that's right. The last James L. Brooks film. I say the last that James L. Brooks died. Yeah, but. yeah, it's the last. <laughs> Did you see James. it? I saw it in a theater, yeah. Wow, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I think Jack Nicholson has a fascinating career. I mean, we talked about Dick Miller... Uh, on our Patreon last week. And Jack Nicholson is the guy that was not Dick Miller and went on to a full career of leading roles, directing, doing all kinds of stuff, which is amazing because Jack Nicholson has like one mode. We're going to be talking about my films going south. No, we're not. Hoffa. The two Jakes. I can't do a Jack Nicholson. I'm surprised you didn't I'm, do I'm, like a Batman I'm line. Doing, I'm doing old Jack Nicholson. Oh, yeah. What's a good uh, Batman line? You don't know uh, it by heart? Where, uh... Uh, I'm trying to think of like what's one that's suitably obscure. <laughs> uh, you wouldn't hit a man with glasses. If anyone else calls you beast, I'll rip their lungs out. <laughs> what? I don't remember that line. There you Bad go. The deep cut. You could have just made it up. I don't know. You are my number one guy. <laughs> so we're going to be watching Carnal Knowledge. And what do we decide on the anger new... management? <laughs> anger management. Yeah, let's watch anger right. management. Yeah. Uh, I I'm you... gonna regret this. Were you a big Jack Nicholson fan like back in the day? Oh, out of Batman. Oh, certainly out of Batman. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And when I was a kid, he was kind of like. He's one of those guys who was like one of the earliest ideas. This is what a movie star is, mm. you know? I mean, I'm definitely going to watch Wolf, which I've never seen. <laughs> that, yeah, have fun, have fun with that. <laughs> have you seen it? I have seen Wolf. I mean, my, fr- a slog. my friend pitched it uh, when he watched it a few Halloweens ago. He's like, Jane Spader and Jack Nicholson are having a wire foo fight as werewolves. <laughs> Makes me excited to check it out. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. Uh, you can send us letters as well. I don't think I mentioned that. Hey, Eckhart. Think about the future. <laughs> it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. My Jack Nicholson impression is only getting worse. So we may as well sign off. <laughs> yep. You know what? You're going to have to go workshop it in the mirror. <laughs> you know, get the facial looks perfect. You know why my impression is bad? Why? Because Jack is dead. <laughs> you can call me Joker. <laughs> All right. My name is Justin the Glue. I'm Will Slam. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Justin, did you get anything on Black Friday? So, I went to the Vinegar Syndrome site, and then literally 30 minutes later, I went, I can't afford this. Like, <laughs> and I, at this point in time, like, I don't need it either. I have giant piles all over the place of stuff that I haven't watched. And I literally sent them an email and went, I would like to cancel my order. And they canceled it? Yeah, they did cancel it. Yes. Good. Very very nice. I know. Makes you know, s- that's a moment of maturity. <laughs> yes, I mean, so so what happened? You clicked send and, and then you were like, why don't I feel good? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's yeah. what it was. I'm like, I'm looking forward to those Sean Costello audio commentary <laughs> tracks. So... What's happening? Are, are you getting old? No, I just don't have money. Okay, <laughs> That's fair what enough. it is, yeah. I'll tell you what I did. I went on to the Severin site and I pre-ordered a movie called Skinner. Oh, it's not good. 
I I've seen it. Okay, yeah. I know it's not good, but I, Ted Raimi stars in it. Ted Raimi stars with Tracy Lords with Tracy Lords and Ricky Lake also. But what interests me in it, and I would like to do this perhaps as a Patreon episode at some point, because the director Yvonne Naj was Heidi Fleiss's ex boyfriend and possibly her pimp. He's interviewed on the Blu-ray, which he shocked is? me. Yes, he is. Okay, so there's a documentary by Nick Broomfield mm-hmm. called Heidi Flies Hollywood Madam, where he is like one of the main characters in it, and he is so awful. Mm-hmm. Just one of the worst men. Just monstrous. Just, a, just an absolute monster. And... I, like I think I haven't I actually haven't seen Skinner. Yeah. I, I ordered it knowing that I'll love it. Uh, but, but, <laughs> it's boring. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I watched it with a bunch of friends last year. Okay, well, what, you know what? If I had the money, would have bought it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but what I know from Severin, send me Blu-rays. <laughs> I know from watching Heidi Fly's Hollywood Madam that the Tracy Lord's character in Skinner is named Heidi. Really? So. This is why I think at some point we should do a Patreon episode of Heidi Fleiss, Hollywood Madam, and Skinner. And it's the <laughs> Yvonne Naj special. I don't even know who Yvonne Naj is. Well, Yvonne Naj's other major project. I mean, he did a lot of episodes of like, I don't know, Starsky and Hotch. Wait, like, who's Heidi? I don't even know who that is. Either. He- Heidi Fleiss? No. Oh, okay. Well, I, maybe this is before both of our times. <laughs> yeah. Heidi Fleiss was a famous madam of a hollywood brothel that serviced Mm. many famous actors okay uh i think the only name that really became public was charlie sheen (laughs) watching those so so what yeah exactly um but yeah it was a big big scandal for a brief period oh my god people paying for sex (laughs) i know it was a different time yeah um did you get anything else uh i also ordered from the severn website uh, some Mondo movies, uh, mm. Mondo, B- oh, that Bilardo, box set. and uh, yeah, that was uh, good because I looked at that and I went, "Not for me. <laughs> I'm not even tempted by that." For I me, know, for you, for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you get anything from Vinegar Syndrome? Uh, yeah, I did. I, I got. I got <laughs> what are you saying? It's sadly. Well, we love vinegar syndrome. No, we love we love vinegar syndrome. But but like I do, I definitely do have that pang of man. I'm spending. I'm spending some money. <laughs> but you know what? That's why I make money. Well, I hope they. Uh, that's why you sold out. As <laughs> we covered in the exactly. earlier episode, yeah. Because I'm sticking to my principles. Give me the little rascals. I'll direct that. <laughs> I have no problem. Um, I mean, Vinegar Syndrome is just releasing so much good stuff. I mean, check out... People probably think we're getting paid. I know, we're not. Sudden yeah. Fury is a Canadian film that's great mm-hmm. and is uh, coming out finally. It's never released on VHS in a Blu-ray uh, with tons of special features. So I guess we're growing as people then. You have money to spend. I don't. The haves and the have-nots. Yes, that's true. But but also, uh, I... So this is how we're growing. I have money. Yes. You have maturity. <laughs> that's right. So I will all, take money instead of maturity. It evens out. <laughs> no, it doesn't. 